Hello, welcome to Reading in the Attic, a podcast featuring old and new fiction with a retro feel. My name is Camille LaGuire, and I'm literally reading these stories to you from my attic. So pull up a dusty chair and settle in. Today I'm going to read two stories, because they're both short. Well, actually, I'm going to read three stories. And two of those stories are very short, which is good because they're both pretty dark. I'm not really fond of dark stories, so when I write them, they tend to be flash fiction or even microfiction. Today's main story, though, is a light flash fiction, more of a yarn than a story. It's called The Unexpurgated Story of the Baby Shoes Which Were Sold Unused. That title is longer than the story that inspired it, which is a story supposedly written by Ernest Hemingway. It's said that he wrote this story as an example of the shortest story you could possibly write. It goes like this. For sale, baby shoes, never used. And that's the whole story, six words. I always thought that it was a bit of a fraud of a story, though. It shows us the limits of minimalism. I mean, it seems that this tiny set of words gives us a huge tragedy. But does it really? Is this really the story of a dead baby? Or of dreams lost? Or is it just six words which a gloomy mind reads a grand drama into? Could those six words hide a different story? Thus, I wrote this story. The Unexpurgated Story of the Baby Shoes Which Were Sold Unused by Camille LaGuire The young woman who entered the offices of the Pulitztown Gazette was of a strapping height and firm demeanor. She was dressed all in stern black, which set off her pale skin and blue eyes. Mr. Bandywild, the editor of the Gazette, looked her over and came to the conclusion that she was a woman of strong opinions, and might be there to sell him on the concept of temperance, or perhaps women's suffrage, or perhaps both. "'I wish to place an advertisement in your newspaper,' said the young woman. "'Ah, yes, of course,' he said, with some relief. "'Please sit down, Miss—' "'Whitley, Olivia Whitley,' she said, and she sat. He picked up the pen and leaned forward. And the advertisement is for? Baby shoes, she said. I have some baby shoes to sell. Several pair, never used. The ad should say that. Oh, I'm so sorry, said Mr. Bandywilt, realizing that he must have missed the meaning of the severe black clothing. What? said the woman, looking confused. For your loss, he added, indicating her dress. Oh, that! she said, looking down at her own skirts. Yes, it was a loss, I suppose, but she was very old. Eighty-six, and every bit of bossy old bother to the very end. Still, we will miss her. Ah, I thought... You thought what? Well, that you'd lost a child. Of course not. Heavens, if I had lost a child, I would have corrected you when you called me Miss. I... Yes, I suppose. Really, whatever were you thinking... Well, if they're shoes meant for a child and you're selling them new. I didn't say they were new. I said they were never used. Mr. Bandywilt sat back for a moment and considered whether to ask and compound his offense or to simply apologize and take the ad down. She didn't, however, seem to be offended, and he was a newspaperman. 
Pardon me if this is none of my business, but how did these old shoes come to be never used? Oh, that was simply a question of whether my father had large feet or small feet. They were your father's shoes. Oh, no, no, these were girls' shoes. Besides, why would my father not wear his shoes? An aggravating woman. Mr. Bandywilt paused and considered again whether he ought to press on, and decided he might as well. Would you mind, then, explaining to me what the size of your father's feet had to do with a set of girls' baby shoes? Miss Whitley cocked her head and gave him a surprisingly sly smile. It's a long story, and my poor departed aunt would be very upset if I told it to you, she said. Are you sure you want to hear it? I'm a newspaperman, said Mr. Bandywilt. I love to hear long stories which upset elderly aunts. The man considered to be my father, said Miss Whitley, was named Johnny Whitley. He was the only son of a wealthy man, the owner of Whitley and Oshman textiles, now just Oshman rugs, but I'm sure that you've heard of them. The Whitley family has always been rather small-boned and weak. Johnny's mother died in childbirth, and he himself was a sickly child. Now, Johnny married a woman named Sylvia when they were both very young. She was a sweet thing, but taller than Johnny and I've heard tell the marriage wasn't a great match. But it never had much chance to blossom. Johnny went off to serve in the war, but of course he was rejected for being too scrawny. He was so offended that he went east to the big city and took a job as an assistant to one of the war photographers, just to prove he was valiant and useful. As it happened, the riverboat he was on in traveling to the battle lines never reached its destination. The war came up to meet it, and the boat was sunk, losing all hands. Johnny was never found, and it was assumed he was dead. Except he wasn't. He was merely terrified and humiliated, and he swam ashore and headed back for the city. He didn't want to go home. He wanted a new life, and so he made one for himself as a photographer, and did quite well. He had a mistress whom he very much loved. She was an acrobat named Laurentina, and very charming. I'm told she was able to clean her ears with her toes, although she never did it in polite company. They were very happy together, and he intended to make an honest woman of her. Of course, there was the issue of his previous marriage, but he had left that life behind, and he wasn't sure what to do about it. Now, Laurentina was a great reader of newspapers. She read them from front to back, including all the advertisements, and she particularly liked the odd little ads put in by individuals. Everything might have been quite all right for everyone if she hadn't read them so closely. But one day she saw an ad which changed everything. In the meantime, back home, Johnny's widow Sylvia was not left in dire straits. She was taken in by Johnny's father and Aunt Eve, who was the father's sister, and who was happy to look after the girl. She'd always wanted a daughter, and Sylvia was very young when she married Johnny. Everyone thought of her as a widow now, and sometimes young men would pay court to her, and lately there was a young Adonis named Charles Meckler. He was a very handsome man, and tall and strong and of extremely good health, and he was also very intelligent and well-mannered. Aunt Eve was very pleased with Charles. Since the family now considered Sylvia to be a daughter of the house, it seemed to Aunt Eve that if she were to marry Charles, it would bring some healthy new blood into the sickly and undersized family. But there was a problem. Unlike Johnny, 
No one in the family or the town forgot that Sylvia was married, and there came the question as to what to do about it. They could go to court and have Johnny declared dead, which his father simply could not bear to do. Or they could go to court and declare that he had abandoned Sylvia after so many years, and then they could dissolve the marriage. Aunt Eve thought the latter was simply unacceptable. She hated scandal, and the very idea that they should declare publicly that Johnny had behaved so abominably toward his young wife—well, that would be a horrible mark against the family. And since they were sure he was dead, it would be pure defamation to say he had run away. Sylvia didn't care which they chose because she was eager to marry her beloved Charles. However, her father-in-law and aunt argued so vehemently about it that the man had a heart attack and died, which put the kibosh on the wedding plans, at least for a bit. But then there was the trouble with the textile mill. Mister Oshman, who was partner to Johnny's father, did not like leaving things unsettled. He needed to know if Johnny was alive to inherit half the mill. Or if there was some other person he should deal with, and if he had a partner, he wanted to deal with him face to face. Mister Oshman did not give a shake of a lamb's tail about scandal or not, and he went straight to the court to get the matter settled. The judge, however, did not think there had been a proper search to be sure if Johnny were dead or alive, and he insisted that some sort of effort be made to find out. So Oshman put advertisements in all the major newspapers in all of the big cities back east, and it was one such ad that Laurentina found that morning while sipping her coffee. Johnny had never changed his name, so Laurentina saw at once that the ad referred to her beloved Johnny. And after he told her his story, it was very clear that answering the ad would be of benefit to both of them. After all, if Johnny inherited a fortune, they could marry and live in comfort. So Johnny returned home to face the music and collect his inheritance, and it all seemed to go quite well at first. He and Sylvia hardly knew one another any more, if they ever had, and he had no objection to the idea of a divorce. Quite frankly, he just wanted to settle all the legalities, sell his share of the business, and leave. But there was still a problem. Sylvia was showing certain signs which Aunt Eve recognized. The girl was expecting a child. Aunt Eve was horrified, scandalized, and outraged. They could not possibly get divorced now. That child had to be born in wedlock. There could be no question about timing and legal confusions, and there certainly could be no moral confusions. They would have to pretend that Johnny came back to town somewhat earlier than he did. After much discussion, it was agreed that the divorce should be postponed. Johnny, after all, had a great deal of business to settle, and would not be leaving soon anyway. However, he did not want to be away from Laurentina, so he sent for her so he would not be lonely. Sylvia was less fortunate. Aunt Eve was adamant that Charles could not come to visit. It was one thing for Johnny to behave in a scandalous way, but a lady could not have any scandal associated with her. Aunt Eve began to stew about it all. And soon she became convinced that there could be no divorce at all, ever. It was simply impossible. How could a couple with a young child split up? The courts wouldn't allow it. Of course they would," said Johnny. "I'll just be sure that Laurentina and I are seen gallivanting around." "No, no, no," said Eve. "Not with a baby on the way. The court would not allow a split, no matter how bad the behavior." 
which is when Laurentina revealed that they might well have two babies to consider if it came to that. Aunt Eve nearly had apoplexy, but she had to give in. She could not have a scandal of that magnitude. She set about doing everything she socially could to ease the way to a quiet divorce. I was born several months later, and the divorce was finalized, and soon my mother Sylvia married Charles, who adopted me. Johnny married Laurentina just in time to see that their child was also born in wedlock. It was quite the happiest ending for everyone. Miss Whitley stopped and leaned back with the air of someone who had just finished the story. How very bohemian, said Mr. Bandywilt. But what has this to do with a pair of unused baby shoes? Fourteen pair of unused baby shoes, said Miss Whitley. That was Aunt Eve's fault. My feet, you see, were much too large for ordinary baby shoes, and that was quite clear from the day I was born. Aunt Eve was horrified that someone would realize that my feet were too large to come from Whitley's stock. Johnny, of course, had tiny feet. So Aunt Eve kept my feet covered up, and she went around buying baby shoes in every store in town, the tiniest size she could get. She commented loudly on how tiny my feet were, and made sure everyone knew it. And none of the shoes fit, said Mr. Bandywilt. Couldn't even get them over my toes. Of course, if only Aunt Eve had bothered to look, she'd have realized that Charles had tiny feet himself. Some big men are quite dainty in the extremities, you know. Indeed, said the editor. Yes, and my mother, bless her, had feet the size of seat cushions. In any case, Aunt Eve bought all of those shoes and hid them away. Last month when she died, we found the shoes among her things. If only we'd known she had them, we could have sent them to Johnny and Laurentina, but it was too late. So now I should sell them. She spent a great deal of money on them because she wanted people to notice she was buying them. They're excellent shoes. Someone should wear them. The End The next story is a much darker story. It started with a basic idea generation exercise. The theme was spring break, and it wasn't long before I wrote down the phrase, you kids get off my lawn. And I realized right away that all the conflict and tension I could possibly need were built into that. But since I was looking to write microfiction, which is a story less than 500 words, I knew that it would end up a twist or revelation story which then means it's going to either be a dark twist, a la Alfred Hitchcock Presents, or a joke. And since spring break is such a happy subject, and I'm such a contrarian, I had to do the opposite of what I did with the Hemingway story. This time, I had to write a dark story. You Kids Get Off My Lawn, by Camille LeGuire. They came back every year at spring break. Every dang year, same kids. Norton lay in bed and tried his best to ignore them. They didn't damage anything anymore. They just ran around and hooted and shrieked, and every now and then they broke into one of those college songs with drunken off-key harmony. He figured they were from the college downstate. They only came across his place there down a bleak country road because they'd taken a wrong turn on the way to that beach resort. 
There was no reason for a carload of kids to come by his house at all. No reason for them to stop, except for that danged old apple tree which he had pruned to spread out into a wide shelter where he could sit in the summer and contemplate. They saw that tree and stopped to dance under it, naked, two boys, two girls, bouncing naked all over his yard. He cut down that tree, but they still came back every year. And the only thing they seemed to want was to disturb his sleep. He lay there and covered his ears, but the caterwauling only got louder. The sound penetrated his head like a bullet. He pulled the blanket over his head. He wasn't going to go to the window and watch them dance around where the tree once was. He wasn't going to run out there. He wasn't going to shout. He wasn't going to wave that dang gun around like he had the first time. They were so high that night, they hadn't even noticed when it went off. He never should have buried them there in the yard. That was the problem. Soon as spring break was over and the resort was empty again, he'd dig the bodies up and move them to where they were headed in the first place. They could party at the beach for all eternity, and then maybe he'd get some sleep. The end. That's it for this week's show. Next time, I'll read for you a Christmas story that's kind of a mix between light and dark. It's a short, hard-boiled crime story called Dead Men Don't Eat Fruitcake. And, if you're good, I might sing for you a Christmas carol for cats. Although maybe I shouldn't say that. It's probably incentive to be bad. Six words of this podcast were probably by Hemingway. The rest was by Camille Laguire. Music by the Royalty Free Music Company. Until next time, see you in the funny papers. <laughs>